Hello everybody. Today we have got Gary in the studio and he's brought some of his paperwork. We smash five million pounds worth of fake notes racket. <laughs> he's the founder and CEO of Product of a Postcode and he's kindly given me this t-shirt. And all of his links are going to be in the description box below the video. If you want to check out his good work. So I did talking schools and Gary's at the forefront of that. Knife crime, education. And of course, the kids listen to people who've been through it. The parents can talk to them. The cops can come in. But it's more like they're getting preached at. But if you've been through it and the kids you know, can see that, it, the story is going to resonate. And that's what Gary's doing. So thank you very much for coming on, Gary. No Do you want to just tell us how, you know, what it was growing up like was for you in, in London and where you grew up? Yeah, so I grew up uh, in the east end of London in uh, uh, a fashionable place now called Brick Lane. But when I grew up, <laughs> it was a ghetto. So my parents come there in the 50s and they was Irish immigrants. And being Catholic, they had 11 children. Yeah. And so I had a lovely life, school clothed, washed, dressed, church twice a day because I was taught by Catholic nuns. Yeah. And uh, and then, see, the area I grew up in, it was it was, it was real poverty. Mm. And, uh, you know, immigrants from all over the world for hundreds of years come and settled there yeah. because it was cheap. You know, you could live there, you could get a room, and it was cheap. And mm. so lots of immigrants settled there. Uh, and it had the rag trade. And so people, if you was looking for work and you could run a machine, do a bit of sewing, do a bit of pressing, you'd get a job. Yeah. Because they was making all the clothes for the high street stores. And so there was lots of work there. And you, know, you had different industries like Truman's Bury. Mm. Uh, yeah. So it was, it, was a, it was a very, it was, it was a poverty, but a lot of good come out of it. But a lot of bad come out of it as well. I was brought up a Catholic. I think I was an altar boy for a bit as well. Did yeah, I've done a bit of that. Was you? Yeah, I've done a bit of that. <laughs> I've done a bit of that. It was, it was a way of getting out of school. Yeah. Because the church was right next to my school. So, yeah. yeah, it was a way of getting out. But, yeah. So, what was the, you know, did you go through anything that set you off on the wrong path at an early age with any warning signs? Yeah. So... I had a, a very doting mother mm. and she was she was an amazing woman and she basically looked after the 11 of us. Uh, yeah, and so she would clothe us like twins. So everyone, you know, in the area that I grew up, and they thought we was all twins because we all looked alike. <laughs> and she would dress us to the, to the nearest sibling the same. Yeah. So me and my brother, the one up from me, we'd be wearing the same clothes, same haircut, and we looked like twins, but we was always immaculate. She always looked after us. And then the turning point in my life was the youngest was 18 months old. The oldest was 15. I was seven. And my mum died of leukemia. Oh, man. Now, no one's feeding me. No one's washing me. And I become feral. And I was very disruptive. I mean, so as a, as a, a seven-year-old kid, we were sat down, me and my uh, siblings, and uh, we sat around like a table. And we was all sitting there. And uh, an Irish lady, Josie, she was standing in front of the table. She'd just come back from the hospital visiting my mum. Because we used to go to the hospital and visit her. And like today with a mask and gand and hats, I mean, I used to stand there, my brothers and that would all be round the, the bed talking to my mum. And I can just remember looking up thinking, what is going on? I ain't got a clue. I just know that she's not well. 
And then they told Josie and uh, the person who followed me, so I can't call him my dad, which you'll find out later. And they were standing in front of the table and they were looking at us and they said, you know, we've got something to tell you. And it was explained that your mum's gone to live with Jesus. And then my sisters, my brothers, they all started crying. And I'm looking and thinking, what are they crying for? Nuns have been telling us he's, Jesus, he's a great bloke. He walks on water. He can do things with bread that no one's ever done before. So I'm thinking, he's a great bloke. And then, you know, one by one, they all leave the table, run upstairs, and they're all crying and crying. I don't know. I don't understand it. I'm looking and thinking, what's everyone crying for? You know, <laughs> for what I know about Jesus, I want to go and live with him. And uh, But that was a real turning point because... A couple of a couple of days later, or a week later, I was still going to school every day. And then one day I turned up at school, and our, the nun, the head teacher, her name was uh, Sister Joan, she said, uh, got me out of the classroom, and she said, we're going to go and pray in my office. I thought, all right, because we'd pray all the time. Do you know what I mean? You brought up a Catholic, you pray for anything. And uh, But the church was right next to the school, outside the school gates. And she said, we're going to go in my office and pray. So I goes into her office. And one of my brothers is there, and, and my sister, Kim. And she says, we're going to pray. So we start praying. And the windows, the, the shutters on the, uh, the blinds on the windows are shut. Normally, she would look out to see the playground to make sure everyone's be behaving. And they were shut. And then she walked over to the window, and then she come back. She looked out the window. She come back. She said, we're going to go to church now. Oh, all right. So walks across the playground, goes to the church, walks up the steps to the church, goes in the door and I'm looking and everyone in my young life is in there. Uncles, aunts, cousins, brothers, sisters, everybody and the whole school. And then I see a coffin and that day I just fell to my knees and I realised mm. what going to live with Jesus meant mm. because as an altar boy I've done services for funerals and weddings and, you know, christenings and, 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 I'm, and then I connected that, hold on a minute, my mum's dead. So from that day onwards, my life just, it was it was just so terrible. And to, up until the age of 15, anywhere I went, I'd walk through a door, I'd push a door, go into a supermarket, I'd be looking for my mum. Because if there, now I know I'm a little, I'm getting a bit old and I know a lot about Jesus, I couldn't work out why he would take a mother away from 11 children, one being 18 months old that need her. And it just, it just messed me up. And I become uh, disengaged. School becomes somewhere to go and eat because they was giving away free food. And no one told me the path of academia and what academia does for you. Yeah. And so it was either go to school or go in a children's home. Well, I was in a children's home and I didn't like it. And I ran away from there. I wanted to be with my siblings. You know, I wanted to be with my brothers and sisters because if if they was hurting as much as me, yeah. and this was too, I was in the, I was putting the children's home two weeks after my mum died, <sighs> and so if they was hurting as much as me, I wanted to be with them to help them. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so yeah, and my my life, you know what I mean? It just become it just it just turned so quickly, and the person that fathered me was an alcoholic working in Truman's Bury, a great place for an alcoholic to work, and uh, he learnt me how to shoplift. Oh wow! And so I remember the first time, and it was it was like the first time he taught me. It was in a shop on Whitechapel Road. It was called Lipton's, and it was like a supermarket. And uh, it was a uh, a tub of cheese. And I was walking behind him, and he turned and he said to me, 
I'm going to show you how to, to shoplift. And I just watched him and he just put it in his pocket. And so every time I went in the shop, I'd done it. And, uh, but he sees something in me that could help us all survive. Uh, as I say, I've become very feral. And the first time I was arrested, I was nine years of age. And at nine, I was committing crime. Where I grew up, uh, it had all the, the Sunday markets. I mean, I, I don't know if you know why we have Sunday markets. It's because the Jews wouldn't work on the Sabbath, which is a Saturday. So Sunday markets grew up, like Petticoat Lane, Brick Lane, and all the different Sunday markets. And so what used to happen? People used to go shopping, buy loads of stuff, and walk back to their cars and put it in their cars. Well, that took a stone and a, and a smashed window, and you got a few quid. And so we was just following people backwards and forwards from the market, just watching them, you know, and we, on a Sunday, you know, eight, nine years of age, I'm earning great money. Wow. I'm earning great money from all leather coats and all sorts of things. And then it just, it, you know, it just, where I grew up. See, I never knew anyone that went to work at seven in the morning, come home at five and sat around a dinner table and spoke about their day at work. It was non-existent. It didn't happen in my life. Yeah. But I knew people that dressed nice, had nice clothes. Not they didn't necessarily go to work. They, you know, they got to live in the way that they got to live in. Yeah. Leukemia is horrendous. My sister raises money for leukemia charities. Her, mm. when she was one, um, she had a baby that was, I think she was one and a half years old. And she was diagnosed with leukemia. Yeah. So my sister had to give her job up and she was living in that hospital for two years. Mm. But fortunately, Great Almond Street Hospital saved the baby's life. And I went to visit the kid in Great Almond Street and, um, there was all these kids with shaved heads and they had mm. all kinds of different terminal illnesses. Yeah. And my sister said, look, we've got like 80, 90% of chance. Those kids over there, they're not even going to see Christmas. Yeah. And when I got out of Ormond Street, I was just supposed to just go to the tube and come home. And I couldn't. I, I ended up walking around London for hours on end. Yeah. My head was just gone. Just thinking like, how can this happen to, you know? Mm. And it's just, it just made me really reflect on life. Yeah. So, so for a long while, I couldn't uh, celebrate Christmas. You know, when people was going out when they're young, because yeah. this happened to me over Christmas. Oh. And so it devastated me. Leukemia, like, it just devastated my life. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And the pain from it, do you know what I mean? I mean, to, to go through it yourself must be terrible. Do you know what I mean? No, yeah. I mean, I, I sometimes I sit there and I think, you know, and it brings a tear to my eye like it has now. Hey, you know you're gonna die and you're gonna leave eleven kids. What you must be you must be so strong. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It 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 just you know, I can't fathom what would that I've got kids and I I yeah. you know, knowing I was gonna die and I was gonna leave them and they're all young. It's it, it must be it must be, I just don't know. Yeah, it's it's painful. It's absolutely brutal, isn't mm -hmm. it? Painful. Um, I think my sister said for adults it's still 50 for 50, but for kids now it's advanced, so it's like 80 90% yeah. recovery. Well, see, back then in 74, 75, you had no chance. No chance. Yeah. Really? It was a death sentence and you ain't getting oh. out of it. Mm. So to go through that at seven, eight, then that's just traumatized your head in properly. Yeah. And now your dad's teaching you how to bloody shoplift. Mm. So, so on a, on a Thursday night, every Thursday night, I used to have to go to Tesco's in Bethnal Green Road. Mm. And I was given, you know, the trolleys the old women pull along. They go mm. shopping with and a holdall. And I used to have to go there. I'd get a list, but with no money. 
and I would go there every Thursday night to feed my brothers and sisters. Wow. And so I was shoplifting and I got arrested for that when I was 12. And I'll never forget it. When, because I was just blatant. I was just putting it on it. But I was doing it every week. It was just become my norm. And I'll never forget when they took me to the back room. They wouldn't let me out of the shop. They took me in the back room. And it was a table as long as this. But there was another four tables. And they emptied it all out and put it all on the tables. Sorry. And it come to, they added it up. It come to 170, no, to 125 pound. If I give you 125 pound now and said go out and go shopping you come back with bags full of shopping yeah but see this didn't last us a couple of days 11 kids do you know what i mean it barely lasted us a week yeah. because we didn't know what we was cooking we yeah. just anything you know and so i had to replenish it and then when i got caught for that i got a ban uh for tesco's hello sainsbury's so next week it was just Sainsbury's. <laughs> so I, never, I didn't get caught in Sainsbury's, but that's what I had to do. It was survival, and it was you know it was feeding my brothers and sisters, and then but he would always be there with his hand out, and where I grew up, I told you it was the rag trade, and so all the older uh, boys they're robbing them. So as I get a bit older, now I'm robbing them. So I'm robbing leather factories, any garments, you know, just just. They was there for the taking. So you're just like going in at night when they're closed. Yeah, just going at night when they're closed, go through a wall, through a window, through a roof, and just take it all, the cutting equipment, you could sell that, the leather, whatever it was. But this was like, it was like a progression. Everyone was doing it. Did you have a regular fence? Oh, anyone would buy anything. Yeah, any in the East End, you could sell anything anywhere. Really? Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, do you remember when black bags, I don't know if you remember, so black bags are actually an invention in my lifetime. Really? And there was a dustbin strike. And uh, so Tower Hamlet's Council, they used a certain place to uh, store all these boxes. And so you couldn't, but you had nothing, you, you couldn't use the chutes, you couldn't do nothing, but they was, they was keeping hold of the black bags. So I found a way in there, as you do. And uh, now I'm selling black bags to storeholders, shopholders, restaurants. <laughs> now everyone's getting black bags. But I made a, I made a good living out of selling black bags to people during the dustbin strike. <laughs> so are you looking up to the wrong people as your idols at that age? So so the, the, the charity I set up is called Product of a Postcode. So people say, oh, you're a product of your environment and all that. But it's smaller than that. It's your postcode. It's the people that live around you. And so that's your brothers, you know, friends and of the family, teachers. Everyone put as an input into you as a young kid. And so what the person who father be seeing me, older people that's involved in crime are now seeing in me. I don't care. I've got no fear. I, there, there's nothing I won't do to get a pound note. And so one day I was about 14 and three blokes that I knew, they was our mothers. And so they was out getting a pound note. And uh, so one day they called me over, they was in a van and they said to me, girl, come here. So I went over. They said, get in the van, we've got a bit of work for you. Touch. you tell, at the time you're telling me about a pound note, that's all it is. Because once upon a time in my life, if you told me there was money there, <clears throat> It actually belonged to me. In my head, I knew it belonged to me because you told me about it. I just got to go and pick it up. So we get, I get in this van and we head towards the city. So I lived like two minutes from the city. So the city is the banking area. And why? So it's like 
mile end. You understand mile end. So that's the the first the first the, the first mile from the city gates because there were seven gates mile end. But I lived half a mile between the city gates and mile end. And so we went into the city, and I'm in the back of this van. And there's two in the front. There's one in the back of me. And the driver looks at his watch and he goes, "In two minutes time, a security van's going to pull up, right?" We want you to go over there. He knows you're coming. Just go over there. Do whatever you got to do and just take the sacks. It was sacks at the time. I said, yeah, all right. Fair enough. So, Were you armed or anything? I was 14 years of age. I'm going to headbutt the geezer. <laughs> all right. So I get out of the van and I'm walking across the street and the geezer opens up the chute, takes the sacks out and he just turns to the pavement and I hear, go! And I thought, who's calling my name? Why someone calling my name? Go, go. And I turned, man, I went, get here, get here. So I went, what am I going to do? Get here, get here. So I thought, I better do what I'm told. So I went over, went back to him. I said, what's happening? He went, get in the back of the van. So I got in the back of the van and they'd gone to each other. He's crazy. He's got more bottled than a, than a 30-year-old man. Right? So I said, what's happening? They said, no, we're going somewhere else. That was a test. All right. <laughs> So he goes in the van, and then we're driving along, and the driver said, hold his ears and his eyes. And they hold my ears and my eyes, and they're asking people for directions. So the last time I get a view, we're going over Tower Bridge. Now we're going into South London, completely different world to me. And uh, we drive around South London for a while, and the van pulls up, and they've let me look out the window of the, the, the window screen. And to my left, there's an like a little office block and to my right there's a helicopter I'm like what the fuck so they said right gal what we're going to do is we're going to go in get the pilot we're going to bring him out he's going to take us to the bit of work and that's what we're getting away with I'm like oh my god these people are crackers right so two of them go over to the to the, the office block and they say to me when we when we get him out when we're in the helicopter you come running over I'm like, okay, so they go into this office block, and these two blokes come out. They've got a pilot. This is a pilot. He's got all the gear on, everything, white shirt, and one of them's on this shoulder, and one of them's on this shoulder. And they walk him over, and they put him in the in the helicopter, and then they go, "Gal, well, my feet didn't touch the floor. I think I hovered." I was thinking, Jesus Christ, what are they doing? These are mad. I know they're nuts anyway. And so he gets in the, the helicopter, put the headphones on, he starts the engine up. And they look, so one of them's in the front, the pilot's in, is, we're in the back. And the one in the front, he looks at the pilot, he's, and he says, everything all right, mate? So he says, yeah, yeah, yeah. So he looks at me, he said, where do you want to go, girl? I said, I just want to go home, I've had enough, get me out of here. So they said to the pilot, watch out, well, please, mate. They was just doing it for fun. <laughs> They've nicked loads of money from somewhere and just hired an helicopter. <laughs> and uh, and I'm, there, I'm there a bit of, you know, a bit of fun for the afternoon. But they see I had bottle and I didn't care. And so after that, they've got nice watches on, they've got nice clothes on, they're driving nice cars, and now they're giving me bits of work. What, what was the first bit of work they gave you? Uh, yeah, we're not talking about that. <laughs> but, what? you know, I was out committing crime. So, you know, so when so I do a lot of work around helping young people, and, you know, they talk about gangsterism. You know, a gangster, today's gangster, is someone that spent 25 years of his life in prison. And so I might not have been nicked for that. Do you know what I mean? So, But I ain't a gangster. 
Do you know what I mean? And so it, it gets misconstrued what, what a gangster really is. And so I'll tell you after how I get into young kids nuts about that. I tell people I had gangsteritis. I was a nerdy business graduate. Yeah. Watched too many movies like Scarface and yeah. The Godfather and um, got into some dangerous situations and lucky to be alive. Oh, but then no one tells you about crying in the cell. Because <sighs> you don't cry in cells. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I sat there and cried. <laughs> <laughs> what crime stories can you tell us then that won't get you in any shit? Uh, so I ended up on the front page of News of the World for five million pounds. Uh, so the economy was being smashed back in the 90s, in the early 90s. And uh, they wanted... Actually, someone sold me for 45 grand to the News of the World told me it was their pal and it was uh, a reporter and uh, it's a funny story I wrote about it in my book please uh, detail it yeah this so what happened so I was introduced to a bloke and uh, he said to me and my partner he said uh, I've got a bloke that wants to buy lots of lots of fake money so I went, nah, I don't fancy it. And my partner said, nah, nah, sweet, sweet, it's, it's okay. Uh, yeah, I was accused of being paranoid a lot, but I was very cautious. Uh, there's a difference between paranoia and, and being cautious. Realistic. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so we was introduced to this bloke, and he was a strange bloke. In really, what way? He was just strange. He was something about him he weren't right. And uh, he wanted to buy money, and his story didn't sit by it. He was talking about, you know, Arabs and the Far East and all this, and I was thinking this is far too far fetched. <laughs> and uh, so he bought he bought some he bought quite a bit, and but he bought quite a bit. So then he invites us to this hotel in Swiss Cottage. So he goes to this hotel in Swiss Cottage, and we go in this room. And I walk into this room. I didn't like the geezer in the first place. And I walk into this room, and it's like a greenhouse. All windows everywhere. It's a penthouse suite. And I'm like, what the fuck is this? I said, shut these curtains. Oh, oh, sorry, sorry. And he starts getting all shaky. And so anyway, we do the trade and we go away and we've got to come back tomorrow morning for a big parcel. And uh, I, I, I just don't fancy it. I said to my pa, I ain't going back. He said, no, we've got to. I said, no, I just don't fancy it. Something wrong. It's not right. He said, no, no, you're paranoid. You're paranoid. So the next morning we turns up and... We're in the, walking into the foyer, and he's standing over at the bar. As I walk in, there's a woman sitting there reading the newspaper. And she, so I'll get to her, she goes, blah, 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 blah. And I went, do you see that? And he went, nah. I said, that woman just spoke into her hand. And he goes to me, nah, shut up, shut up. And as I'm walking past, I'm looking back, I'm thinking, oh, my God. So he goes over to the bar, and he's there, and he's like this. And I said, what's the matter? So he said, oh, no, we're upstairs. I'm just, I think I'm getting flu. I'm like, Pah. so he goes over to the lift. Now, I've got in my head, I know what I'm doing to him. So he gets in the lift. And as he gets, I'll go in first. And as he comes in, I, I drag him by his arm. And I spin him man. I throw him against the wall. And I start patting him down. He said, what are you looking for? I said, I think you're old Bill. He said, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not. I swear to you, I swear to you. So, but now I've got him up there like that. And so my mate says to me, he goes, put him down, put him down. He starts fixing his clothes. So we go upstairs into this room and I'm not having none of you. I'm just like, something's not right. And he presses a different number on the floor, on the, on the lift. 
And so I said, what's happening there? I said, you, that weren't the same floor as yesterday. Oh, they had to give me a different room. Oh, God, you're getting worse. And uh, so he goes in this room and we sit down at his coffee table and there's, there's a suitcase put out, loads of money, he has a can up. And he, I said, where's your money? And he said, I've just got to go and get it. Well, in this room, right, it was a very fancy room and it had doors everywhere, all wooden doors. And I'm like... I said, you ain't leaving this room. I said, where's the money? He said, it's in that room now. I said, I'll go and get it. He said, no, 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 no. So anyway, and he gets up and he walks out, walks over and he goes through this door. As soon as that door slams, it goes crazy. People come out from every door, right? And I'm like, whoa. So I get to jump up, right? And then this shadow come over me. Two of the biggest police officers I've ever seen in my life. And this shadow, it just come over me, right? And I'm on the floor. And they're putting bracelets on me, the plastic things. And I'm, I've got it in my head, we're being robbed. So I said, listen, carry on doing what you're doing. Take what you want. The suitcase is there. Take what you want. But within 24 hours, I'll guarantee I know who you are. Right? Do what you want. And one of them bent down. He said, who do you think we are? So I said, you're robbing me. Do what you want. Just carry on. Right? And he bent down. He put a warrant card in front of my back. And I went, thank God for that. Because <laughs> I thought I was going to end up in some boot somewhere. Yeah. And uh, and I think that's the last time I spoke. And I remember uh, they took us to uh, a, a police station that had a court connected to it in, Hem uh, not Hem Hempstead, Hempstead Heath. And it was, it was closed for the weekend. And so they took us to that police station because they didn't want us to go anywhere. Do you know what I mean? Because the, because the economy was getting smashed. It was right. People was getting in their wages, uh, cash machines. Taxi drivers was getting brutally, do you know what I mean? Mm. Five pound journey and giving out 45 pound. And so the economy was getting smashed. And so they took us to this police station. And we was there for the weekend. And I remember this policeman, he come in and, because they'd done interviews, but I went no comment. I just went no comment. And uh, they, he, the door opened and the policeman chucked that in. It was on the floor. So I was like asleep and I looked down and I went, nothing to do with me. And I just turned over, just thinking, I don't read that anyway. I don't like the news of the world. I don't read it. <laughs> and then I can hear someone shouting, gal, gal. Who's that? Gal, gal, read the newspaper. So I opened it up. It took me three years to read this. I couldn't read it. I see myself and I went, oh my God. And I put it down. And I was thinking... I mean, the old people, they love to wind you up and they're saying, you, you're going to get 12 years. And I was thinking, he might be right. I mean, this is a wind-up. Because they wanted to do us for the whole lot. Do you know what I mean? They wanted to do us for the whole lot. And uh, I ended up getting seven and a half years for that. How long were you unsentenced? Uh, so I got seven and a half years, but most of the five years was to run concurrent. And so uh, I had to serve two and a half years, but I went home a couple of times, which I'll tell you about in a minute. But seeing drop, being dropped off in prison, I remember the first time I went into Pentonville and, uh, you know, you, you, you go in there. See, I don't, like, I don't believe about telling people the process, especially young kids, about the process because do you remember going to the, to the uh, seaside as a young kid with all your mates? It was great, wasn't it? Yeah. You have a laugh. So yeah. I don't believe kids should be taken into prisons and all things like that because it should be a hard hit. It should be a good slap on the ass to make you wake up. But if you tell young people about it, oh, is that what happens? It's like going to your mates to the seaside. It was great because you're all going. 
do you know what I mean? So I, I don't like to tell young people about what happened, you know, the process of prison. It should be a, a wake up call. Yeah. And so I remember going in, into Pennyville and it used to have to use the buckets. There was no toilets. And I have never smelt anything like that in my life. Oh. 500 men. And in the morning, when they're slopping out, oh my God. So I had a thing after that. You do not use the bucket or the toilet. You go to the toilet before you bang up because it was just disgusting. It was absolutely... You can imagine 500 people all storing their shit and piss. It's, it was terrible. It was disgusting. But it's like not... You said it's go before you bang up, but it's timing it might not be that easy mate, sometimes, is it? No, but then, I mean, that's why a lot of people should chuck it out the window. Uh, Wrap it up and chuck it out the window. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? But it's degrading. Yeah. It's degrading, but I just couldn't handle the smell. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I mean, I, I, I had a very tough upbringing. Do you know what I mean? Uh, but as I got older, I started, you know, I mean, I remember one day in school, uh, because no one was feeding me, no one was washing me. And we had PE. I didn't have a PE kit. I was told, well, you got to do it in your pants. Shock, horror. Have you ever seen a homeless person's feet? My feet was worse than that. Because mm. young boys don't wash until they're told to. And I never had a mum to tell me to wash. Mm. Do you know what I mean? I was just fending for myself. And so I went into the toilet in the school, flushed a chain, put my feet down there and washed it. Because I couldn't have the embarrassment. Wow. And so that's, that's, that's left a scar on me for life. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I have to be immaculate all the time. I mean, i got more shoes than Imelda Marcos. <laughs> Because I used to put cornflakes boxes in my shoes and sellotape around them and keep them together. Wow. So I've got a, an addiction to buying shoes. Do you know what I mean? I just have to have nice stuff. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And that's the scar of, you know, of my life. And and being part of, you know, this so-called gangster life. What gangsters are going to put there and tell you about putting their feet down the toilet because it's so dirty? That don't happen. <laughs> they want to tell you about all these mad stories. <laughs> so you said that there was moments where you were... Crying in prison, then you able to yeah. able to describe what what led to that? Yeah, no, because it's it's an emotion. So I learned that all my anger. So I had a lot of anger, and fighting as a kid was second nature. So I had six older brothers. So someone my own age couldn't couldn't hurt me. So if me and you were the same age, same height, same weight, you wanted to punch me, I'd I'd probably been beat up by five of my brothers the night before. So my praying threshold was, a di you couldn't do nothing to me. So I would class that as bullying. So I never got into a fight with someone that I thought it was bullying. Do you know what I mean? Because you couldn't hurt me anyway. Because, my, you know, honest, I mean, my sister stabbed me when I was 10 in the arm. Weren't stitched up, nothing like that. Because we were so violent. We were so messed up. What Did you remember what that was over? Just a silly argument. She picked up a knife and gone bang, straight in the arm. But that, that was, that's what we did. But if someone done it to us, then it was a different story. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. That, that person's getting really... Uh, but we would fight amongst each other like it was, you know, like we're going out to play football. And so, you know, some of my own age, they just didn't hurt me. So my emotions were suppressed. Do you know what I mean? And so when I say about crying in prison, it's an, it's just another emotion. It's like laughing. So I do work in, in workshops in uh, Felton Young Offenders Prison and I get them all to come in and sit down. And as I walk in, they think, couldn't this old geezer teach us? Do you know what I mean? And then within half hour, I've got to meet and out my hand because I'm I'm real. And one of the first things I say to them, you know, and these are in prison, and I say to them, look, this is going to be a real workshop. 
and it's going to benefit you, but you have to be real open and honest. And I say, who's ever sat in their prison cell and cried? And they all go, because they're bad. <laughs> and they all go, and I'll put my hand up and go, and they're all looking at me. And I go, it's an emotion. If I said to you, who laughs, you'd all be going like this and telling me stories about you laughing. But because you're men, you won't say that you cry. But everyone that's ever been to prison sits there and cries. And it's just an emotion. Because you miss your mum, you miss your brothers, you miss your sisters, you miss your kids, you miss everyone around you. And you miss walking along the street. And so you cry. And then you think, you know, because sometimes you think, when am I getting out of this? And you just cry. You know, it's like hearing a joke and laughing. It's an automatic reaction. And so, but once you understand your emotions and your feelings, and that's it, you can open up to it. But not many people want to say, yeah, I sat in prison and cried, because they're bad. I remember about, I was on remand two years in, second year, and um, my girlfriend, we had the dear John phone call. Yeah. And I, I was like, fucking hell, I can't let anyone see me cry. Mm. So I go back to my cell, and I get a book, and I'm like facing the wall, and I'm like pretending to read this book, and I'm fucking crying my eyes out. <laughs> and you're reading Love Story. No, but you do, because it's just an emotion, and yeah. you have to release it, because yeah. if you don't release these emotions, they build up, build up, and you end up in some dark places. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So I, I, I learned that you had to talk about these things. Mm. Do you know what I mean? You had to, you had to, you, you've got to talk about these things. And I mean, I'll never forget a time I was in, in Feltham, I was doing this workshop, and it was about gangs. And uh, there was a young boy, he, was there, he must have been 19, something like that. And he went, so I told him about the workshop, introduced myself, and, I, and he went, I can't go back, we was doing about pathways, what happens when you come out of prison. He went, I can't go back to where I live. So I said, why is that? He went, because I'm gang affiliated, isn't it? So I went, what does that mean? I'm making that, I'm stupid. I said, what does that mean? He went, well, me and my mates, right, we get this and we get this and we split it up, he sells this, he sells that. And, you know, like, it's, it's our gang. And and I went, but you keep saying you and your mates. I said, where's the gang in that? He went, well, you know, this is what we do. This is how we survive. I said, do you have to pay up to anyone? And he went, what do you mean pay up? I said, well, you told me you're in a gang because you're gang affiliated. So do you have to pay up to anyone? And he went, no, I don't give no one pee. I earn my own money. I don't give it to no one. I was like, oh, because you're not in a gang then. Because the only gang in the world is the New York Mafia and you have to pay up. And there's a geezer that sits at the top. He's called a gangstar. He went, oh. I said, so do you, do you, is that how it happens? He went, no. I earn my own pee. I said, well, you're not in a gang then. Don't say you're in a gang no more. He said, I'm not in a gang. It's me and my mates. I went, all right, lovely. <laughs> <laughs> because they're, they're misguided. Yeah. You know, because what it is, right, and I'll be really honest, so I went on to advise the government, youth crime and violence, and I told them straight away, who are we here to help? Because they wanted to disguise it, but I'm a realist, I don't talk bollocks. And so I'm a motivational speaker as well. So as soon as I say the word gang, 95% of the audience get a picture in their head, young black kid, all blacked out, looking bad, right? That's been given to you, not by me, but by the media. And so let's, let's be real. So... And they're calling them gang members. And the kids are all playing up to this. Right? Yeah, I'm in a gang, I'm in a gang. But the media can't call you what they was calling you in the 80s. They were saying you was all muggers. In the 90s, they were saying you was all rapists. They can't say that. But now they can throw the word gang. So it's used about. So now all these young kids that are running about, they're committing low-level street crime. And low-level street crime has been happening on for hundreds of years in every major city in this country and around the world. But now it's called 
gangs and gangsterism. Where does that... Why? Because we want to demonise a certain uh, percentage of the population and we all go along with it. And it's wrong. And it should stop. And young people, once they talk to me and hear me, they don't say they're in the gang anymore because they know they're not. You're freeing them from the labels. Yeah. The, the government commoditizes them. It's like yeah. a pipeline to prison yeah. and then they've got no, all look, the contractors so it, and all it's that an stuff. It's an industry. Yeah. And so if I've got shares in my mate who's got uh, a prison and I'm a solicitor and I'm a judge, they're, they're all getting paid. Cash they're all learning it. Yeah. yeah. So it's like, it's like social services. So a social worker comes into your house, police, you know, oh, we think we can help you. Sign this bit of paper. We'll have parental rights and you can have parental rights. Guaranteed within six weeks, six months, your kid's in the children's home because it's the family police and there's a big industry. Yeah. And it's care homes and it's care workers and they all need to be fed and they all need to have a job. So if there's no kids going into these care homes, just the same as prisons, where's all these, what's going to happen to all these jobs? It's a multi-million pound industry. And that is my question for you then because I had a good chat with someone the other night who has got brilliant ideas about reducing knife crime and he wants to pitch it to the government. But my response was, the government not only doesn't give a fuck, they're profiting from the status quo. Yep. And the second thing is, because the government allows drugs to be illegal, the ex-cops that I've interviewed say that black market gets bigger every year, so there's more profit and temptation for the young people to be dealing drugs rather than getting legitimate jobs. And That's the right. government knows that, but they keep it going because the, the, the justice system's like one of the biggest employers in the world right course. now. Of course, of course. And so yeah. if we chop the arm off of that industry, what are we going to do with it? Now there's people losing their homes. You know, poverty, you're going to make it even worse. Yeah. These people are trying to get out of it, but then you're going to put multi-thousands of people back in it. So you say that you work with the government and I've had politicians come to my talks. They have an emotional reaction. They promised me the world. I never see them again. How how can this change? Because there's this, this huge wall of money that's making profits from the status quo, yeah. commoditizing kids, low-level drug offenders, people with addiction issues, fill the prisons up with them. Yeah. We can make all this money. How, how can we stop that other than raising public awareness? So politicians <laughs> so they use you for sound bites yes so what they do is they talk to you and they and they go wow i've never had that perspective before and then they go in parliament and they say exactly what you told them with a couple of posh words yeah, yeah. and nothing changes <laughs> and nothing changes yeah, yeah. but they look good <laughs> they look good and look like they want to do it and then they find something else six months down the line that they want to uh you know be righteous about it, it ain't gonna change it ain't gonna change it's not going to change. There ain't a government in the world brave enough to do it. They, they, you know, they, there's answers. You can you can change some young people's lives, but you know how? It, there's a big industry there that needs feeding, and someone like me ain't going to be able to stop that. I'm going to be able to stop a few, you know, going to it, but I ain't going to stop be able to stop the masses. So I'm glad you've come on and said that because this is one of the messages we're trying to get across on this podcast from people on the front line, such as yourself, Gary, and people watching this. And I know a lot of cops, there's good and bad in every profession, a lot of cops are watching this. Um, they join up to go after the paedophiles, the murderers, the rapists, and they get sent out to shake kids down for weed just so that they can make all these arrest quotas and fill the prisons with low-level drug users. It's absolutely sickening. So that's why on this channel... Our motto now is end the war on drugs. Take all those resources that have been misappropriated 
I'm not saying don't go after the traffickers, but it's 90% of drug arrests are low-level users, 90 plus percent. Yeah. Take all those resources and go after the pedophiles and the mm. rapists. The cops are telling us they don't have the resources to do it. Take all that money going after low-level drug users and get those resources. And if you're a cop who joined with the right intentions and you're being told to go out and do all these bullshit things, it's up to you guys on the front line to make waves and tell your bosses, you know, we do. We want to be going after the, the, the truly bad guys. Mm. The paedophiles, the rapists, the murderers, kid murderers, and all this, all this shit. See, a lot of people, a lot of young kids on the street think that policemen go to work just to harass them. Do you know what I mean? You come, you know, when you get a community police officer that's involved in a certain area, you believe he just comes to work to harass you. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? He's more of a hindrance. Yeah. Than because I, I'm out there trying to earn a living to feed myself and clothe myself. So you become a hindrance. Do you know what I mean? If you're going to stop it, you're going to have to, you, you have to fight in a different way. You have to go and fight in a, in a different way. Stop filling up the prisons with young people that really don't need to be going to prison. A person who's arrested with drugs, possession is at the most harming themselves. Prisons, I'm a member of law enforcement against prohibition. These are cop, ex-cops, ex-judges, ex-prosecutors. Mm. They say that the police were started by Robert Peel out of London mm. to take person A out of society that's harming person B. If you go back millennia, murder, robbery, mm. rape, you know, that was the purpose of prisons. But once the for-profits war on drugs was incentivized by greed and corporate profits, that all just went out the window. Yeah. A young person arrested for weed, throw them in a prison, they're going to get on the heroin, they're going to make their criminal connections. In Arizona, mm. they get neo-Nazi tattoos. Yeah criminal record they can't get a job what mm. chance have they got then if no. that's a customer for life mm. in arizona they give them 50 dollars on the gate say have a nice day yeah I, i've got a, a friend that i grew up with and last late last year we sat down and i said to him come on this has got to stop in that prison i said let's work out how much you've done 17 and a half years but <sighs> behind the door actually behind the door not what he's been sentenced to on and off <sighs> heroin addict no one has got this person in the 17 years that he's been in prison help him to get off of it and stay off of it. He's just been allowed to go six months, 12 months, 18 months, two years here, 18 months here, six weeks here. And it's been, you know, for 30 years of his life, that's all he's been doing. And he's actually sat 17 years behind the door. That So <sighs> heroin, heroin is possibly one of the only drugs that your body actually needs. The rest of it is mental. So he's sick. He's sick. He needs help. He don't need to be put in prison all the time. Do you know what I mean? He's got something because his body can't function without it. Growing up as a kid, my impression was a heroin addict was someone who lived under a bridge, went out stealing all day. Yeah. And was like a, a um, you know, lock him up, throw away the key. Once I got into Arizona jail where 90% of the prisoners were injecting heroin and I heard those sad stories it completely woke me up to hear mm. abused as kids, seen parents died, um, been sexually molested, and no one had given the tools to deal with that. Wow. So they go on the hardest drug to block that pain yeah. out. We then arrest them for that, re-traumatize them with even you know severe conditions, yeah. and expect them to be model citizens. Yeah. So the, the, the a, a very high majority, like you've just mentioned, 
will end up in prison because yeah. of the traumas they've suffered as a young person. Yeah. And I'm I'm one of them. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I, I, I was traumatised as a young person. Yeah. And so that trauma, and I'm no different to anyone else. You know, so a lot of people that's led my life style, you know, they all have the same background. They was traumatised at a certain, you know, a young age. Yeah. And they've gone on, they've been violent, they've committed robberies, they've ended up in prison. Prisons are full of them. Prisons are actually full of products of a postcodes. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? A product in America is a product of a zip code. Yeah. You know, prisons are full of us. We've all suffered trauma. You know, whatever that is, if it's drug addiction, mental, sexual, you know, th this book that I wrote has everything in that. You know, some people are surprised that I'm the person that I am today and they can't connect me, me today, to this book. Yeah. Some people are shocked when they meet me and go, I wasn't expecting meeting you. I was going to meet this crazy, but because I ended up in mental hospitals as well. Yeah, can you pass me that a minute? Yeah, as part of my journey, I ended up in mental hospitals, being transferred from prison to a mental hospital. All right, let's just go back to this arrest then that you just described for the counterfeit money. Yeah. How did you fit into the prison hierarchy when you got, went into the prison? So, uh, it's survival. And so, in prison, as I explained, if you would have dropped me off in the desert at once upon a time in my life, I'd have been selling the best sand anyone's ever sold. And there's a bloke on the next June selling exactly the same thing. So in prison, there's a currency. And so now I've got hold of all them currencies. And I'm just trading. And I'm selling this. I'm Whatever the currency is. I even started selling prison issue clothing because I come up with the idea, but it was brand new stuff because I didn't want to wear clothes that's been washed and 500 people was washed, you know, wore them before me. Yeah. And so I would wear, you know, brand new stuff that was coming out and I'd give someone a bit of whatever their currency favourite was and that they would get me clothes out of stores and then I was getting them for other prisoners and they was giving me was trading they used to call me BT because I used to have phone cards like that and you was only allowed for at the time and you're one person but I used to have phone cards like that because I was trading I used to have people gambling you know they would gamble I'd gamble on football I'd run a book so it was just you know in prison it was so where, where I grew up, majority of people was involved in crime. And having seven brothers, so I knew a lot of people. And having seven brothers, so I knew everyone they knew as well. And they was very violent growing up and do you know what I mean? So they was known. And so wherever I went, wherever prison I went to, I knew someone. Do you know what I mean? And, and through my own life path as well. So it was all right. You know what I mean? I could just, just get on and do whatever I wanted to do. Do you know what I mean? And, and to me, it was just about surviving. So you was a wheeler dealer with multiple hustles. Yeah. What year was it that you went in on that sentence? Uh, 93. 93. Yeah. So you made it sound like, you know, you clicked up, people knew you. Yeah. Quite an easy ride. Were there any challenges? Yeah. I'll never forget one day. They moved me to this prison. Uh, it was called, uh, what was it called? The Man. And they was, it was a sea cat prison. And it was, uh, they started off, this was a the they started to put for a test putting televisions in there, and so you got this little portable television. I think all the prisoners have got them now, but this this was the pilot scheme, and it was great. And so I was you know having trades up here and there. I had a lovely gold bracelet on, and I remember coming out of my cell one day, and these two heroin addicts, but they was massive, right? They kept looking at me, but they wasn't looking at me. They was looking at my bracelet. And I realised, whoa, that's worth a few quid. 
So I took it off, went back to my cell, and I put it in the, in the drawer and shut the door, shut the cell door. And I went back out there, and they see I never had it on, and they went, oh, fuck. And that was the only time that, it, that I, I felt, hold on a minute, do you know what I mean? Like, I'm going to get stabbed up here. But yeah, no, I never had anything like that. How old were you at that point? I was 24, 25. How many years of incarceration have you done? So uh, uh, that, uh, because I went home for a while, what happened was I, they put me in a beaker. And so I should have been in, uh, I should have been in, it's called a white collar crime. So I should have been put in an open prison. But because they've observed me and seen me and they said to me, look, everything that goes on in prison is down to you. There's no way you're going to an open prison. So they transferred me to a BCAT, which is one down from A. Uh, and I remember going there and I got outside. I've never seen so much security in all my life. It was like there was cameras everywhere. There was walls and walls and walls. I was like, whoa, I'm going to get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> and they put me there and... Uh, I just got back into things. I'm a, on the drive down there, it's funny what happens to me in my life. The prison, the prison officer that transferred me, he used to be a nightclub bouncer in a club in Mile End Road, and he, he called Benji's. And he said to me, "When we get there, he told me a mention of a name that's there in the prison. He said I will get you in the cell next door to him." I said, "Great, I ain't seen him for a long while." So he got me in the same cell, like the cell next door. And I just settled in, just carried on doing my thing. And then one day, I started looking, man, I'm thinking, some of these people ain't criminals. I know what a criminal looks like. You don't look like criminals. Do you know what I mean? But there was people from up north. It was like, it was just a mixture from everywhere around the country. And people didn't know people properly. Do you know what I mean? And I was like, these don't look like criminals to me. So when you get arrested, you get what's called your depths. And it's court papers and all that your solicitor's papers so you can read through them and see what your case is so one day I got in my nut I said I'm not having this because I don't think some of these are criminals so I went up to the pool table and I put my papers on there and I said right everyone can read that and I want you to put yours down as well right and I can so I can read yours because I don't think some of you are criminals right and a couple of people put them down I was reading them yeah he's alright he's alright and it was it was about ten minutes before bang up, so it goes behind the door, and in the middle of the night, I can hear all doors opening, right, and people pressing their buzzers. And when I got up the next day, half the the spur, the wing was empty; <laughs> they've all disappeared. And I'm going around these cells, going, "Oh my god, I knew, I knew, I fucking knew it." Do you know what I mean? Once I realised that, you know what I mean. But I didn't find out what some of them was in for. But it must have been bad in the beaker. You must have done something bad, and so. There was loads of empty cells. I didn't. I, that's when I thought, right, I'm not doing this. These people ain't being man me. And so I thought it was macho. Do you know what I mean? I thought I was being macho. Yeah, sex offenders, you just, you know, that's what you do. It's a manly thing. But I didn't realise until later that my subconscious was hiding something from me, which I'll tell you a little bit about later in the padded cell. And... Uh, I thought it was macho, do you know what I mean? So I didn't want these people around me, scumbags, feel scum of the earth. They shouldn't even be breathing the same air as, you know, human beings. I don't want them near me. So I've got this screw, a prison officer. I've got him. And because uh, one day, I'll tell you what happened. I wrote about my book, but I never mentioned who the letter was for, from, but I will tell you now who it was from. So this prison officer come into my cell one day and I'm laying there and I'm smoking a joint. So I, I'm, I can stay on the, 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 the wing all day. And I'm like, and he, he comes in and he walks up to me and 
he's got this letter and he said, it's for you. So I went, get out, don't ever come in my house again. I said, my house is not my house. I said, get out, don't ever come in again. He went, oh, okay, okay, I'm really sorry. And he come back, I've opened the window, made it all nice and smelly. And he's gone, uh, you know, I was just bringing the letter in. He said, I didn't know you knew them. I said, yeah, when did I ever tell you I knew anyone? You know, who the fuck are you? Do you know what I mean? It doesn't matter who I know. And he went, oh, no, I was just interested. I said, well, you probably read the letter. So when I've now looked at the letter, it's kids writing. I'm thinking, who the fuck is this? I thought it was one of my kids. But he frightened me. Do you know what I mean? I was thinking, like, what's, what's going on? Why is he holding it like that? And it was kids writing, and it was a letter from Reggie Cray. And so now he thinks, like, oh, yeah, he's, you know, you know, he's been on that. Now he's, you know, he's a gangster. But I'm far from a gangster. And so now I've got him. I'm going to use that to my advantage. So I said to him, uh, look, I said, sorry about that. Do you know what I mean? I've got to be angry. I said, but don't be, you know, I won't walk into your ass. Do you know what I mean? I'm taking the Libby. I know I'm taking the Libby. I said, you won't walk into your ass. I said, but look, I told everyone to stop talking to him. And he come back to me the next day. He said, oh, look, you're making my job terrible. He said, I feel like a nonce. I was like, hey, you're a prison officer. <laughs> so he said, you're making my job terrible. I feel like a nonce. No one's talking to me. I said, right, look, I'll sort it out. Everyone will talk to you, but you got to help me out. Yeah, no problem, no problem. He said, what do you want me to do? I said, right, see all these cells, they're empty. I said, if I see someone that I don't like, you're going to go on that computer and you're going to look at them and you're going to tell me what they're in here for. He went, only the ones that you, do, you think, though. So I said, all right, fair enough, yeah. I've got a good eye. <laughs> I've got a good eye. And so I can tell them. And so next day, this geezer walked on and he had two prison bags with all these properties being transferred from another prison. And he walked on and he was walking like this, like bouncing, like his head like this. I looked at him and I went, nah, you're not a criminal. So I let him go in his cell and I went over to his cell and I said to him, uh, hello, mate, you all right? He went, yeah. I said, what are you in here for? He went, burglary. I said, you couldn't burg in your own house if the window was open. <laughs> and I slammed the door. <laughs> I know what he is. So I went over to the police. I said, what's he in here for? He went, oh, I can't find out. He came back. He went to me. Oh, I don't know if I should tell you. I said, what do you mean, Dave, you tell me? Tell me. He went, he's in, he buggered two children, two five-year-olds. I went, what? I went, what? I said, okay, leave it with me. So I said, later on, uh, uh, Association, just make sure you're in your office, don't come out. He said, All right, all right. So, yeah, prison issue jumpers it was quite thick. So, I cut the arm off, I've turned it into a balaclava, got some prison overalls and some prison work boots, and I broke a table leg. And I've gone in there, and he was writing, he was writing, he was leaning like this, writing. And I can imagine him saying, oh, I've just turned up at this prison, it's really nice, everyone's nice. And then he's got to that, I've gone, Look, whack. And he's looked up at me. And I could see the shot before it hit him in the face. And it hit him in the face, and I thought, yeah, lovely. And he flew back off the chair. And I was just going to him, whack, whack, whack. I was jumping on him, beating him to a pole. I didn't care. Do you know what I mean? Because, as I said, I thought it was macho. And then, so I've gone back, got rid of all the stuff. And I'm in my cell. And they've locked us all up because it's a serious assault. And uh, they've closed the prison down. And the old bill come in. And I look out through the spot. He's in the opposite. <laughs> oh, she's going laugh. He's in the opposite cell and, you know, like outside a crime scene with a tape. I'm like, he's died. Shit. Okay. 
So I didn't sleep much that night, but I didn't care. Do you know what I mean? And so the next morning, the prison officer came down to my cell. He went, don't ever tell anyone I told you. I said, no, shut up. Don't be silly. He went, he's in hospital. He come here from a, a prison hospital to recover because he just had a heart bypass operation. <sighs> I'm like, hey, hold on. And then a couple of weeks later, I see a man in the exercise yard. He's got two broken arms. He's walking with a limp. He's got a big bandage around the head. He survived. Do you know what I mean? But I don't regret it, but. Do you know what I mean? I just thought it was macho. But then I went on a mission to, to find out who everyone was. And there was there was talk around the prison that this bloke, he was uh, he was telling people that uh, he's in for rape, blatantly. And I'm like, why ain't no one done nothing to him? And so when they do, uh, in the morning, they call you for work, they was like gathering people in, in a, a secure area. And I never used to go on it because I never used to go to work. So I was I had a cleaning job. I never used to do nothing, but I had a cleaning job. And so I wanted to get out there because I wanted to see who this bloke was. And so I got out there one morning, sneaked past the, the, the screw, and I plotted up next to him. And I'm looking at this geezer, and I'm thinking, whoa, I can see why now, because he's massive, right? So I, me, I just went, hey, I hear you're telling people you're in it with rape. And he looked at me, looked down at me, and he went, yeah, well, what the fuck are you going to do about it? So I went, what? And he went, what are you going to do about it? I said, you'll see now. And then the screws come. And they said, come on, you shouldn't be in. They dragged me back. So the next time I see him, there was a big poster dropped with rapist nonces keep him out of this prison. And he's running along the land and he's on fire. I said, I told you we'd meet again, didn't I? <laughs> And then, uh, yeah, that's called a fire brigade and everything. His cell blew up. I don't know if it was electric or something like that. He had, yeah, he had an accident coming. Yeah, but there was another geezer, and this this was this was crackers. So there was this geezer, uh, and he I used to I call him in my book binman. So he used to collect the bins from all the the landings, all the the wings, and take them out to be all emptied, and. Uh, he was from a place called Aylesbury in Oxfordshire. And I used to see people talking to him. And I, I used to look at him and think, there's something wrong with him. He ain't right. There's something not right. So I went up to this geezer and I said to him, uh, I said, what's he in here for? He went, oh, no, I'm not telling you. So I said, what do you mean you're not telling me? He went, no, I'm not telling you. I don't want anything to do with it. I said, what's he in here for? He went, oh, look, I'll tell you, but it's, it, it's, it's like a miscarriage. It's not, it's not right. It didn't happen. I, I said, tell me then, let's let's discuss it. So he said, what happened was, right, he was going out with his girl and her dad was racist. So he didn't want his daughter with this with him, right, because he was black. So I went, yeah, I don't get you 11 years in prison because 11 years is an odd number. Do you know what I mean? So, and it's a, it's not what armed robbers get. It's not what burglars get. So I'm thinking 11 years, that's not right. So... I said, you don't get 11 years for that. And he went, oh, he's nearly done the sentence. He's, he's, he's on his way home. I said, I don't give a fuck. I said, what's he in here for? He went, what happened was, right, because the dad was a racist, he didn't like him. He used to have to go and meet his girlfriend, but he used to have to climb in the window and they'd have a kiss and have sex and all that. And I went, right, it still don't get you 11 years. He went, no, but one night she weren't near, the lights was off and her 11-year-old sister was in there. I said, shut the fuck up. I said, do you believe that? And he went, yeah. I said, you don't believe it. I said, never talk to me again, you fucking idiot. So the next morning, bin man's coming to collect the bins. And I've got a sock. 
And I've never spoke to this geezer. And I've got a sock with two big square batteries in it. And I'm standing at my cell door and I've got him around my back and I'm leaning up against the wall and he's come in. I know he's got to go to the three floors with three landings. And I went, morning. And he went, like he shocked for me to talk to him. I went, morning. And he went, all right. And he went up, got one bin, took it back, come back the second time. I said, all right, how are you? So he went, yeah, I'm all right, thanks. But as he's walked past me, now I've run across and he's where that lamp is. I've hit him. I've, he's turned around. I've hit him. I said, oi. And as he's looked around, I've hit him. And his skull opened up. It was just pure white. No blood. Just opened up. And I went, crack. Now, that's, to me, that's like the bullseye on a dog. I just keep hitting it and hitting it and hitting it and hitting it and he's screaming he's running up like crawling up the stairs going ah, and so and he tries to get to an alarm I just keep hitting him oh, he's going to be there all day and then uh, I heard a gate open and then an alarm go so now I've got a mop and I'm mopping up the blood right and I've got the water I've chucked it in the toilet and I've run in the cell and I've shut the door and so I'm laying there right and they all come with uh, riot gear on because it's a serious assault. And they're all standing at my door. So they, they open the door and the, the SO comes walking in. And he says, Hutton, we want you to come to the office. Why don't you come calm? I said, what for? He said, there's been a serious assault and you're the only one in on this landing. I went, right. He said, yeah, so it's you. I said, hold on a minute. Didn't you just open that door with the keys? And he went, I said, so how am I meant to get out there then and do that and get back in here? What am I, Houdini? <laughs> and he's looking, he's looking at his mates and he's gone, yeah, I did open the door. <laughs> he said, but I still want you to come. So he goes to his office, he goes to the SO's office and all the, like, all the, they, they escort me there. So I see in his office, I said, what's happened? I said, I'm confused because I was locked in a room, in a cell. I said, I don't know what's going on, why are you accusing me? I said, like, what's happened? He went, there's a serious assault. I said, who was it? He went, oh, and he told me his name. I went, any in here for raping an 11-year-old girl? <sighs> and he's doing 11 years. And he went, yeah, yeah. I said, come on. I said, if that was your daughter, you'd have people queuing up to beat him up. Don't be accusing me something and the door's locked. I said, you can't prove nothing. You can, the door was locked. What, did you give me? Did you let me out to do it? And he went, no, no, no. I said, well, you can't do nothing there. He said, get out of my office. Because <laughs> <laughs> the guards, when they know someone's got those charges... They, that person's got nothing coming. But I've got a question for you, Dan. Mm. So in Arizona then, there's a lot of he says, she said stuff. Yeah. And sometimes people will be saying like that person's a chomo, they say, out there, child molester. Yeah. But then if you don't produce the paperwork to show that person's a chomo, you get stabbed. Yeah. Is that how it works in the UK? You, to be honest, they very rarely get, they very rarely get an hiding. Okay. Seriously. Some yeah. people befriend them. Yeah. And talk to them and have, you know, have a relationship with them. Like, yeah. uh, it was an eye-opener for me. I'm like, what the fuck are you doing with these people? Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? And I knew I had to get out of there because it was full of them. Yeah. And so one day I went into an office, into into the SO's office, and I'm sitting there. And I said to him, look, you've got to, I've got to get out of here because I'm going to end up in, I'm going to end up staying here for the rest of my life. And he said, you probably will. So I said, I've got to get out of here. He said, but you can't. He said, you can't. Everything that goes on in this prison is down to you. So I said, that's why I've got to get out of here. I just got, because me, so it, at the time, it didn't matter where you drop me off, I'm going to be as bad as everyone in there. Do you know what I mean? Because that's my, that was my nature. Do you know what I mean? And it was all about survival. 
And I, uh, I said to him, you've got to get me out. He said, no, I can't. You're not going anywhere. And then something come out of my pocket and I put it on the table and he went like that. And he got on the computer and he went, you're going to uh, Spring Hill Open Prison on, <laughs> on next week. I went, thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> and then when I got there, when I got there, that's when my life really turned. So I got there and uh, there was a few people I knew. And they, they had these, uh, it was an open prison, so but he had a big fence around it. and uh, But it was more relaxed, you could walk about, you could do what you want, things like that. And and he was in the open. And they had these old uh, tunnel, what they used in the World War Two to have soldiers. Uh, they, they was made of corrugated iron, and they had beds in them and all that. And they said to me, you're sleeping in there with 20 other blokes, or 30 other blokes. And I was like, okay. And so they were at the other end of the prison, they had these nice rooms in like these bungalow setting uh, wood temporary things, but they had nice rooms in them. So a, geese, a couple of geezers I knew, they was doing, uh, they was coming to an end of a 25 doing, they used uh, prolific armed robbers, security vans. And they said to me, Gal, you're not, you're not sleeping with them, go and get your bags, we've got a room for you here. Every night we're having Chinese curries, pizzas delivered to the gate. I'm like, yes, okay. But then they dropped something on me, and they, which I, I don't want to go into. But they said to me, but you're on your own on this one. He ain't coming with you. So I went, all right. And I'm walking around this field, and I just thought, you know what, I'm just going home. And so I went back, and I made a phone call, and I said to someone, look, meet me in half an hour, or an hour, at a, uh, a McDonald's that I've seen when I'm passing in, in a sweatbox in the prison van. And I told him where it is. He, all right, okay. So I give him time to get there. And I just jump over this fence and I'm gone. And I'm running through these fields and uh, I'm a bit lost, right? So I, I see a village in this in the countryside. So I walk out into this village and I'm walking along and I and I'm really, people start looking at me. They're all looking at me weirdly. And I've clocked, I've got prison issue clothing on. <laughs> And so I went back into the fields and I'm running through these fields and it's getting darker and darker and darker and I'm running and running and running and now I can't see my hand, right? It's getting that dark and I'm running through these fields. I think, Jesus Christ, I'm never getting to McDonald's. It ain't happening. And I stopped and I slowed my breathing down and it's pitch black. And I stopped and I slowed my breathing down and I can hear, come on, come on. And I'm, I'm listening to it and I'm thinking, where's that coming from? And so I'm walking and I'm slowly walking to this, this voice and I get to these bushes and I climb through the bushes and there's a little girl, she's got a horse and she's stroke, like combing the horse down, putting it in the uh, stables for the night. And she's going, come on, good boy, and all that, right? Uh, and I walked up to her and I had a Walkman, a, a Sony Walkman, and at the time they was, they was worth money. So I said to her, it's crazy, <laughs> I said to her, hello, and she went, oh, hello. I said, is your dad a bat? And she went, yeah. I said, do you like music? And she said, yeah, of course I do. I said, look, there's a Sony Walkman. Put it on. You can listen to the radio. I said, but I want you to take me to your dad. <laughs> oh, I'm doing that. <laughs> I took this little girl, walked across the, the, like, the, the farmyard, and I've got this little girl I've got to buy around. <laughs> I knocked on her door, and uh, the dad come comes out and he's like and he's looked at me see me in prison as you glow and he looked at his door and he grabbed his door I said no nah, mate I haven't done nothing I just need your help and he went what, 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 what's going on I said look 
you can see I'm in prison issue clothing. I said, I just need to get to McDonald's. And I told him where it was. And he went, I said, will you give me a lift? I said, I ain't in prison for nothing. No, you know, I'm not, you know, you can, you know, I told him what I was in prison for. And he went, yeah, all right, mate. And he took me in his car and he drove me all through the country lanes and dropped me off at McDonald's and I went home. And, you know, when I got to McDonald's, got some new clothes, put, put them on, some money, bought some McDonald's and we drove back to London. But then that become a whole new way of life. Do you know what I mean? And then the paranoia does kick in. Now I'm not, suspicious of everyone i'm becoming paranoid are you on drugs uh so i was i was drinking and uh a little dabble with, with the uh powder with the white powder because the only time i smoked was when i was in prison do you know what i mean but i i, I so i couldn't be slowed i like the fast life so when i'm watching people growing up and they're taking heroin and they're projectile vomiting and then going like this, i was like whoa i don't want that one to go out and party vomiting and scratching yeah. the walls all day always yeah. so it could that I, I, you know so i want i like the fast things so yeah and um see that become a whole different ball game being on the run i was on the run that time for 18 months i've done quite well for 18 months being on the run still living in london uh how did you manage to do so well so i i so I describe myself as a, as a little street urchin that's very cute, but not good looking, but I'm cute in other ways. And so I worked out that you can't drive, you can't go on a bus, you can't go on a train because all these can be stopped. So you walk everywhere. Do you know what I mean? And the chances, you know, someone in their late 20s, you know, 30s going to get stopped, it ain't happening. Do you know what I mean? If you present yourself well, so I could quite actually function as long as I didn't go in a car or, or anything like that. Do you know what I mean? So I walked everywhere. But then you end up walking like this because you're always looking over your shoulder. And so when I went back into prison, I'm walking along the landings after 18 months of being on the run. I'm walking along the landings going like this <laughs> but not realising I'm doing it because it become a habit. And were your crimes escalating while you are on the run? Yeah, I still took part in crime. I, I still took part in crime because I, I had to survive. So I, I still took part in crime. And so, you know, because crime for me at that time, it was a way of life. It was, it was you know, it's, it, was, it was me going to work. Do you know what I mean? And so, but then when I went back, uh, my life changed, changed completely. Uh, Before what, we go to that, yeah. why did Reggie Cray write to you and what was your relationship with the Crays? So he read that, and he's in prison, and it says where I'm from, and uh, I think it even says I'm a gangster, or East End, East End gangsters or something, wearing Armani suits and all that crap. So he's probably read that, and he wrote a letter, just wrote a letter saying, look, you know, keep your nut down and, and things like that. Because I grew up two streets away from where they lived. So, you know, the aftermath for them... Uh, I knew quite a lot of lot of the people growing up. What stories did you hear about them then growing up? I had lots of stories, had lots had lots of stories. Uh, but it was nothing. You know, growing up, I never used to look up to them. Do you know what I mean? It was nothing that I thought like, you know, oh wow, yeah, bloody hell, I want to be. I didn't want to be like that. Do you know what I mean? But to me, it was more like this is what you do. It's not you know wanting to look up to someone. This is what you do in life. Do you know what I mean? You know, I was told to go and shoplift. And so now there's no boundaries. There's no, you know, I can do whatever I want. And so it was about survival. So I was no looking up to someone going, oh, yeah, 
I mean, who wants to look up to someone that spends 30 years in their life in prison and dies? <laughs> Not me. Do you know what I mean? So he wasn't looking up to him. But, so, you know, but there was lots of people in the East End that, that time. See, the East End, people think the East End is a massive, great big place. It's only four four postcodes. So it's E1, E2 and E3 and E14. The rest of it is East London. So the East End is, is a very small place. Do you know what I mean? It, it, it's, it's very small. But there was, there was a lot of poverty there. And so there was loads of people out. There was people the craze couldn't go to and take stuff off and do You know what I mean? They couldn't do that. You know what I mean? So there was a there was a lot of people. Everyone was into crime. Do you know what I mean? And so when I was, I remember I was about 19, 18, 19, had a few quid going out, you know what I mean, dressing nice. And uh, the in the 70s, I don't know if you know, uh, the Dixons, they got arrested for doing the same thing as the crimes. They, they as the craze, they sort of took that vacuum and stepped in and George, so George uh, Dixon he Ronnie Craig gave him a bullet they tried to shoot him in the head and it didn't go off so they gave him that bullet, bullet as a lucky charm but so him and his brothers they took over from that and in the, in the 70s they got nicked for the same not murder but uh, protection rackets and all that I remember when I was about 19 they had a, a club on uh, My Lim Mode and uh it was just open and they wanted to fill it up. And I was a little mover and shaker and that. And they said to me, if you get people to come in here, do you know what I mean? It was a late drink. If you get people to come in here, you can do whatever you want. So it was a license for me to just crack on and sell drugs. <laughs> as long as I said to everyone, yeah, go that way. Do you know what I mean? So how did you get nicked then? What for? When you went back in, after being on the run. Oh, so what happened was, I was... I, I had a toothache, and so I had to go to a dentist, and, uh, oh, no, no, sorry, no, 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 no. So what happened was, I found out something when I was uh, on the run, and the person that fathered me, I found out that he was a paedophile, and I put this person on the pedestal with Jesus Christ. I would have done absolutely anything this person told me, do you know what I mean? And I found out that he was raping my sister. Oh, man. Eight that's... years of age. Oh, shit. But so now, when I find this out, I understand. So anyway, so I'm really messed up. And I'm not an alcoholic, but I want to drink because I don't want to. I've got to stop my brain. My brain is going 100 miles an hour. And I wanted, I wanted pain. And... uh I just, I just wanted it to stop. This man, honestly, I swear to you, I put him on a pedestal with Jesus Christ. There's nothing I wouldn't have done. But he told uh, my family something. Never trust me. But he knew I was the one that was going to expose him. So one day, my sister, my sister Kim, who I set the charity up for, she was a youth worker. She was working with young people uh, in Commercial Street in the East End. And uh, one day, my brother phoned me. And he said to me, oh, this is while I'm on the run. He said to me, you're not going to believe what happened. I went, I get a lot of phone calls. Like, you wouldn't believe it. It's normally me saying it to people. <laughs> they can't believe the stories in my life. And uh, he said, you ain't going to believe what's happened. I said, well, what's happened? He went, Kim has just got a stranger who walked past the door. She's got a stranger. She's grabbed him by the throat and cut, him, cut his throat. Holy shit. And let him drop. And I went, what? He said, yeah. He said, and I, I struggled to call him dad. But for this story, I'll do it. And he said, and like, 
are dead is committed suicide. And I went, what? And he went, yeah, but he's in hospital. He's took loads of tablets, but they've took him to a secure mental hospital. So I went, you're joking. He went, I said, I can't go to the secure hospital, but I can go to the, the medical hospital, right? I'll be able to go in there, but I won't be able to go in there because you've got to go through security doors and all that. I don't want to get caught in there. And so... I said to my brother, I'll meet you at the hospital and we'll go and see what's going on. So we walked into the hospital and we goes to the ward and we goes to the nurse's desk and uh, says to this nurse, uh, could you tell us where Mr. Rutten is, please? And she got up and she went, she went, you don't want to worry about that cunt, you want to worry about your sister, and walked off. I looked at my brother and I went to him, nurses don't talk like that, what the fuck's going on? And uh, another brother was down the corridor and he come out of a door and he went, he's in here, come down here, come down here. So I went in there and all my brothers are standing around the bed. And uh, I said, what's going on? And the person that followed me looked up, he went, you're going to kill me. I said, what am I going to kill you for? My brother, he's paranoid, he's paranoid, don't know what he's talking about. So I went, no, what's wrong? What are you doing this for? What's going on? And he went, all i done was touch the tits. I said, what the fuck's he talking about? What is he talking about? And my brother went, no, he doesn't know what he's talking about. He doesn't, he took drugs, he doesn't know what he's talking about. So I went, you're right, I'm going to kill you. And then my brothers took me outside. And uh, they went, uh, apparently when she's cut the bloke, she's cut his throat and said, this should be you. And then let the bloke drop. Lucky he survived. Do you know what I mean? Lucky Who he survived. Who was the bloke? Just a stranger walking past Holy the street. shit. And she said, this should have been you. But she was mentally unwell. She was, she's completely gone. Uh and so she, yeah, she said it, it should be you. So we went outside and uh, one of my brothers went like this and all put their hands on and we shouldn't say anything to him. Don't tell anyone what we heard in that room. I said, shut the fuck up, you fucking nutters. And I walked out and I was living in a different part of London. So I was, the hospital was a London hospital in Whitechapel. I was staying in North London. So I walked all the way back to North London. I can remember walking, just going, what the fuck? What the fuck? I need to speak to my sister. I need to speak to my sister. But I can't get to her. And I remember getting back to North London, sitting on the bed. And this person said to me, what's, what's happening? So I went, no, nothing. And I never told them. And I kept this, right? I kept this to myself. And I couldn't get to my sister. I couldn't talk to her. Do you know what I mean? Because she was heavily sedated. Do you know what I mean? Uh, because she just had a complete breakdown. And I couldn't get to her. And then one, I was drinking a lot. I just wanted to stop. And then one day I was drinking so much, I wanted pain. I wanted to, uh, because I've never felt really physical pain in my life. I've never felt it. I just wanted to feel the pain that my sister must have felt. And so I was in a nightclub. And uh, this geezer was standing next to me and he kept doing this. So I said to my brother, tell that. Go and tell that bouncer, get this geezer away from me. And the bouncer went, uh, oh, no, just carry on, leave it. So I went, oh, bollocks. So I took the geezer, I took him over to a table, and there was all empty glasses and bottles, and I just grabbed him by his head, and I was just getting the bottles, going, chuck, chuck the cup, and just stabbing him, stabbing him. And I let him go. Not knowing, I, I didn't care at the time anyway, I just wanted to feel pain anyway. It seemed like everyone and his his brother was his mate in this nightclub, and they've all turned on me. I'm getting it with bottles, just getting smashed to bits. But someone puts their hand behind me with a glass, 
and he puts his arm and he's man, he's got his arm and he does me in the eye. Right? And so I look round and he makes a beeline for the door out to get out of the club. So now I don't care about you lot. Do you know what I mean? You can't you 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 you're not hurting me. Do you know what I mean? His bottles, glasses, not hurting me. And so I got out, I followed him out the door. And I went outside and he's standing there by a car like it's not him. So now I beat him up with his car. I put him through every window, right, and I'm beating him and beating him and beating him. And I heard, Oi, stop! And footprints were up like steps running towards me. And I turned around and I see a bat coming towards me. And it went straight in my face. I never went down. So all these are nice. <sighs> so this is why I was at the dentist. And uh hit me straight in the in the face. And the geezer. He hit me, and I went, is that it? Right? I said, you better go and get something else. And he ran back to the club. He was the owner of the club. He ran back to the club, and he locked himself in. I said, I'm coming back. But I'm full of claret. I must look like a lunatic. Right? I'm full of claret. I'm just, you know, there's blood everywhere. And I'm standing on the, 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 the on my lane road, and I'm thinking, I can't go to hospital. Right? I can't go to hospital. And so... I'm standing there and now the police have turned up and they said to me, what happened to you? I said, I don't know. I've been beaten up. I'm going straight to the hospital. I said, I'm getting a cab. I'm waiting for a cab. I'm going straight to the hospital. Okay, you do that and we'll come to the hospital. What's your name? I'll give one of my brother's names. <laughs> and so uh, I've I've gone home and uh, I'm getting stitched up and I'm stitching, stitching my head up, stitching my like, fucking eyebrow up and uh, I phoned the club and I said to the geezer, the geezer, I said, that's a fucking liberty. I said, you've actually took a liberty. Do you know what I mean? And he, he realised who I was, right? So I said to him, I'm coming back there and it's just going to be me and you. But I'm going to be back there in half an hour. And it's just me and you, nobody else. And he went, I'll make some phone calls and this one will be here and this. I said, I don't give a fuck. Right? And so I've gone back to this club. There's no one there. There's no police there. And I walk into this nightclub. It's pitch black and there's five geezers. All standing there, and uh, and I'm with one of my brothers, and I said to him, I said to him, this can stop right now if you just say you're making an apology for fucking taking liberty. And he went, I ain't doing this, I ain't doing. Oh no, I said I don't give a fuck. Who you know, you're not in the fucking room. I said you got these silly cunts with you. And uh, he said, uh, I said, look, just apologise. And he he didn't want to put. I said, oh, for fuck's sake, apologise. And he went, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I said, that's all you had to fucking do. I said, now nah, fuck off. I said, none of these are going to do nothing anyway. And I walked out. And my life become dark. Do you know what I mean? I was, I just had so much hatred and pain. And Do you know what I mean? I, I was prepared to do anything. Do you know what I mean? But I wanted to feel pain. And then I, uh, I had to go and see a dentist. And so I've got a lift to a dentist and I left the dentist appointment as I come out of the dentist for the next appointment because I've got to have a lot of teeth <laughs> all my teeth done and I left the appointment card in someone's card in their car and as they pulled off I went oh I shouldn't have done that what did I do that for and I thought oh no they won't do that <laughs> famous last words <laughs> so I go to the dentist uh, for the next appointment and uh, I'm walking along the street and the street become really quiet there was no cars parked in it nothing and uh I'm walking along and it gets quiet and there's no one about. I'm thinking, what? So I goes into the, the dentist's door. It was in a, in a side street. I goes into the dentist's door. As I open the door, I looks up and there's two geezers running. Dan. 
I'm like, oh, I'll turn around. But then three geezers come from this way, three geezers come that way, and I'm up against the wall, and they've got a picture of me. You're Gary Hutton, blah, blah, blah. You're, you know, uh, large from Her Majesty's Prison. I was like, okay, let's go. And then I went back to prison. But a very strange thing happened to me. They took me to, to I never forget this. It was really strange at the time. This, uh, they took me to uh, Lemon Street Police Station, just on the edge of the city. And this bloke come in, he was immaculately dressed. He come into the cells. No, they should just transfer me back to prison. And this bloke come into the cells and he had the Financial Times in his hand. And he said to me, uh, hello, Gary. I'm like, she don't remember me, do you? I said, no. He said, how's so-and-so? So I went, don't know who you're talking about. He said, yes, you do. You should knock about him. I said, no, nah, I ain't seen him. This is one of the helicopter blokes. And he got arrested around the same time for a hundred million pounds worth of bonds that they got out of a bank. And this, this, now this bloke's asking me, do I know him? I'm like, whoa. I said, mate, I ain't got a clue you're talking about. He went, okay, Gary, I hear you going back to prison anyway. And just walked out and shut the door. I went, fucking, I got fucking, I didn't have a clue who he was, but I didn't want to get to know him. But yeah, and then, and then when I went back to prison, uh, I, I, was, a, I was a different person. Uh, Hold on a second. This is getting insane. Yeah. My goosebumps are rising. Your, your storytelling ability is absolutely brilliant, man. Mm. But like, all true, word all for true, word. And it's just got crazier and crazier. Yeah, and but like, that's what, my life. You think one thing's going to, that's as crazy as it can get. It's just got yeah. crazier. So I've got a few questions then. All right, so it's like you became instinctively a pedo hunter in prison. Yeah. Before you knew Before about I your knew dad, anything. do you think subconsciously yeah. it was signalling something to you? It was given to me a little bit later on. I wrote a chapter called The Brain Train. Yeah. Because, and I didn't know this, which I'll tell you about, I didn't know what I was suffering from. But my, my head was like, and I could not stop it. And I was just thinking and thinking and thinking and thinking. And one night I was sitting in my cell, and, uh, but I could see parts of my life. And it was like I was in a tunnel and I was the train driver and I could rewind, I could press stop and I could watch things and look at things like pictures. And this was all in my head. And I was like, and I was seeing things. I was like, fucking hell, fuck, fuck. And one day I was, I was about, I was about 10 years of age and I wanted to go away really badly. And so, and I knocked on the door, no one answered. So I put my hand in the door, opened up the door, run upstairs, went to the to the bathroom. Next to the bathroom was my sister's bedroom. So before I ran into the bathroom, I was just going to see if she's in. And I went to open the door, and it didn't open. Right? And I went like that, it didn't open. And I went into the toilet. But now I'm playing that back in my head, and I'm deciphering absolutely everything. I've heard, shh, you go, wait a minute. I've actually caught this paedophile bastard. At ten, you know, I'm ten years away, but I don't know that. So my subconscious didn't give me that until later on in life. But I couldn't cope with it. Do you know what I mean? It, it, it fucking ruined me. It ruined me. And one night I'm doing this and I'm doing this, and it seems like I'm doing this for weeks. I'm, I'm deciphering. I've gone over every part of my life. Do you know what I mean? I've dissected my life in my brain. Do you know what I mean? I couldn't wait to to lock the door at night so I could sit there and go. And work out what the fuck's going on in my life. Do you know what I mean? And and so my subconscious kept that from me as a as a survival mechanism. 
but your subconscious delivers it to you at times in your life when it thinks you can accept it. Do you know what I mean? You can accept it. But I was too angry to accept it. And I'm in a cell one night, and then I've just realised, this is why I hate paedophiles. This is why I've got a, a hatred, a burning desire to hurt paedophiles in any way I can. And I just exploded, and I went mad, right? And the alarms went off in the prison, and a prison officer comes to the door, and he's looking through, and he's going, and calm down, calm down. And I'm going, calm down, I'm going to kill one. I just want to hurt someone. And I, and I hurt, and now I'm really physical. I'm going crazy. And I'm in a mad, mad stupor. And I hear, here, calm down in a minute. And I went, calm down, I ain't calming down. Within 30 seconds of him saying that, my arms are dropped, I've got no energy, right? I can't even lift nothing. And I'm bending metal with the prison beds. I'm breaking it. I've got strength from, so I could not do that now. I wouldn't be able to lift one up. And I'm bending the prison, I'm breaking the prison beds and I'm breaking them and I'm smashing everything. And he said he'd knock himself out in a minute. 30 seconds after he said it, I just went, look. And then the door swung inwards. They all come in with masks and shields and they put me up against the wall. And now I think, okay, I'm all right now. But I'm not. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And they just picked me up. They tied me up. They trained these people. So my, my toes ended up in the back of my head. They've tied me up and they've took me down to the seg, segregation unit. And uh, they've, they're, I was laying there, right? They're, they're on top of me, right? And I want to kill them, right? And I said, and they, they're laying across my legs, holding my arms down. I'm laying on the floor. And I said, as soon as I get up, I'm going to hurt one of yours. I'm definitely going to hurt one of yours. And they're going, just hold him, just hold him. Right? And the nurse come out, because I must have looked like a crazy man, right? This nurse, and I see this nurse, she had like a white overall on, and she come over, and she had this little black thing in, it was in a jug, about that big, and at the bottom was a black thing. And I see her come over, and one of them held my mouth open, and one grabbed my throat, and got out, and they put this thing in my mouth, and just dropped this black thing into my mouth, right? And I'm thinking, I ain't fucking swallowing that, I don't know what it is, but I ain't swallowing it. And I went, and he went, I swallowed it, and they went, get off of him. I said, right, okay then, now we see. Well, as they've got off, I can feel this, this heat running from my toes, and it's going up my legs, and now I can't move my legs. And then I can feel tingling in my hands and it's rising up my body and it's getting hotter and hotter. And I'm laying there and I'm thinking, Jesus Christ, no one ever told me about this when you go shoplifting at nine years of age, you say you can end up. Do you know what I mean? It wasn't explained to me. And I'm laying there, I think they're killing me. And it rose up. I was that. I woke up, I don't know if it was seven hours, seven days, seven weeks, seven months later. And I'm looking about and I'm thinking, wow, what is this? And it's all padded. And I'm laying on this mattress. And I look like this. And I'm looking for my hands. And I'm like, where's my hands? My hands are gone. And I'm laying there. And I'm thinking, this is some weird shit. I'm laying there. And I'm, I'm like, where's my hands? My hands are not there. And the door opens. And the prison officer said, sit up. Right? So I sat up. I'm, like, I'm a bit groggy. I sat up. And... He said, I'll undo, I'll undo the jacket for you. I'm like, jacket? What's he talking about? And he undoes these belts in my, and my hands appear. I'm like, shit, that's where they've been. They've been like this for God knows how long. Do you know what I mean? I couldn't find my hands. And he said to me, he said to me, um, I want to have a chat with you outside in a minute. You're going to have a shower. 
And he keeps shouting at me. He's looking down. I feel like I'm a dickhead. And uh, he said, so there's a towel, some shampoo. He said, I want you to go and have a shower and then come out to the desk and we're going to have a chat. All right, fair enough. So I squeeze over on the floor and I get to the wall. You ever seen a, 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 dog, a, a horse or a cow being delivered at birth? Mm-mm. They can't walk. Oh, yeah, yeah. Right? yeah so probably. I squeeze over and I get up the wall and I stand on my legs and my legs are going like this. And I'm thinking, oh, what's happening? So I stand up and he's, he, I walk out of the cell and the shower room's 20, 30 yards. It takes me half an hour. So, sorry, I think I'm walking like this. I'm actually going up. And I'm dribbling with the mouth. Right? And I go into the shower and the water's on. I can see the water, but I can't feel it. And it's just hitting me. And I'm like, trying to get my, my... And I walk back to the desk, another 20 minutes, 20 yards, like this. And I sit down, and he goes to me, the officer says to me, uh, sit down. So I sat down, he said, look, things have got to change. So I said, what do you mean? I'm spaced out. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, you can either go back to normal population, do the end of your sentence, go home and have a nice life, or we can keep you like this. I didn't understand what like this was. I think I'm normal. And then I goes back in the cell and I realised that I'm slow and there's all spit on me. I'm like, wow, this is what this means. You know, when he says we can keep you like this, this is what this means. So every day I come round and I was getting better and better and better. And I decided that I've got to get my nut down and I need to get out of here as quick as possible. Because... If I tell anyone what's why I'm, I'm like, because they're saying to me that they get three psychiatrists and they talk to me, look, tell us what's wrong. Because what I've done was when they've put me back onto normal population, I said, shut that door. I'm not playing your game no more. I'm done. Prison and me is never happening again. Shut the door. If you want to feed me, feed me. If not, I'm staying in here. And I washed and I slept and I never opened the door again. Right? And they got me and they said, look, you have to come to the hospital. Because I, I just, I t- that's it, I'm, I'm done with prison. It's not happening to me no more. And so I went, they took me into the hospital. Wing, same thing, if you want to feed me, I'm not coming out of this door. And I stayed in there for three months, right? They get free psychiatrists because he's not behaving violently no more. He's just washing, sleeping, washing, sleeping. And he's not, he's not talking to anyone. I'm not talking to anyone. Do you know what I mean? There's people I grew up with in there. Gal, what's happening? Drop me out, see you later. Don't want to talk to anyone. Because of the reason, I didn't want to tell anyone what I found out because of this pact. I know they're not going to tell anyone. So if I say to a doctor, look, my, I found out this, this bloke's a paedophile who's fathered me, they're going to say it never happened. So now I'm going to get needles in the arse for the rest of my life because I'm a nutter. So I never told anyone. So the psychiatrist, what's wrong with you? Not interested. And I sat there, but I was closing down. I was mentally ill. Do you know what I mean? I was mentally ill, and I see three psychiatrists, and they transferred me to a mental hospital. Uh, and they said, like, there's, you've definitely got some mental issues. We can't, your behaviour's not right. You know, there's definitely something wrong with you. I was gone, I, do you know what I mean? I was gone. And then I spent some time in the mental hospital. And, uh, but when I was in that padded cell, when I found, when I realised what this was, I looked up and I said, if you can get me out of here in sane mind, in good health, I will never do nothing but good with the rest of my life. And I've done that every day since. 
And so my sister, she passed away. Uh, she told me everything that happened. Uh, I tried to kill uh, the paedophile and one of my brothers stopped me. So he recovered from the overdose. Yeah. yeah. And you, you're able to say, the, describe what happened when you tried to kill him. Or is that yeah, something? no, no, no. I'm quite happy to talk about it. So for a long time, I couldn't talk about it, but I've been talking about my life for the last 10 years now. And it's helped me. I'm writing about it. It's helped me. And it's helped many other people. A lot of people have read that book and contacted me and said to me, I'll never forget this one woman. I was walking along the street with one of them T-shirts on. Uh, I was doing something with a BBC. And... Uh, she wanted to know what product of a postcode meant, breaking change, changing lives. So she went and Googled it. And she, she read the book and she contacted me and she said to me, Gary, I want to thank you. I said, what for? She went for writing that book. It's empowered me to change my life. I said, why? What happened? She went, uh, I was able to tell my husband that I was uh, sexually abused as a kid. And the first words out of his words, out of his mouth was, our sex life makes sense. Now we need to go and see a counsellor. And she went on and she, she got over it and they living happily. Mm, and for me, that's brilliant. more than more than anything. Yeah. But I've had so many people contact me because I've been open and honest about, you know, mental illness, you know, sexual abuse, crime, violence. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's, it's empowered people to change their own lives, not only my own. Yeah. And so, yeah, I, I, your question. Okay, are you okay to talk about yeah. your, your, yeah. your attempt on the paedophile's yeah. life? So what happened was... My sister's now told me everything that's happened, and I'm out of prison. And uh, well, what was that like? I mean, you you must that you must have been listening to her and just what was going through your head. Kill, kill, kill. Let's kill this man. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Let's just kill him. And so what happened was, I was sitting at home one night, and I said, "Right, let's fucking do this." And so I got a big knife. Uh, I put it down my back. I drove there to his ass, parked my car up. I didn't announce myself. I just kicked the door off and I just went in and there's a big long hallway. I kicked the door off, walked down there, walked down the hallway and he's in the living room. So as I go in the living room door, I pull the knife out and I get over to him and I'm just going to do him in the neck. And one of my brothers jumped on me, grabbed me and took me out took me outside now I don't want to fight with my brothers do you know what I mean and uh, he took me outside so I said what are you doing you know he's a nonce and my younger sister she went what, who's he calling a nonce what's that about and my brother went he's talking about me he's calling me a nonce and I went because they're sticking up for him do you know what I mean they're sticking up for him and I'm the nutter do you know what I mean and so and this is why I never told doctors or anything like that, because they, uh, they would have nutted me off, because they would have asked my family, said, look, he's saying that your dad's a paedophile, blah, blah, blah. Oh, no, he's not. Bang, just jab him up, keep him in hospital, he's dangerous. You know, I'd, been, I'd, have been, I'd probably still have been dribbling there. <sighs> and so I never told, never told anyone. And so, yeah, but, yeah, I tried to kill him. And, I, and, you know, if I did kill him at the time, I wouldn't give a shit. I would not give a shit. So my sister, she died of a brain hemorrhage because she... She just turned to alcohol and her life just spiraled out of control and she she didn't even know she had she knew she had an headache, but the drink was more important to her. Self medication. Yeah. And uh, she never ever told anyone why she would cut the bloke's throat, never told anyone nothing. She protect, protected him in certain ways. And uh, she died and it was so painful for me to watch her die. Uh, she died of an aneurysm and I was at the hospital every day, I didn't move from the bed. And she had a three month old baby. 
and I took her on. Uh, she's 20 now. Wow. Uh, but it, it it killed me. And so, I mean, you can read in the book, it, you know, you can hear by my voice, it's painful. So I went to a funeral and I got a phone call and I said, don't ask me for nothing. I've brought this baby up and you ain't gave a penny. Don't ask me for nothing. You want to bury her, bury her. And I said, I won't be going. And then I changed my mind. I said, no, I'm going to go. And one of my brothers said to me, please don't say nothing. I said, I'm talking at a funeral. I'm going to talk about her life. I said, that's all I'm going to do. I'm going to come in my own car. I'm not getting in a car with none of yours. So I went to the funeral, drove my own car, and I got up and I spoke about half an hour about my sister's life. Do you know what I mean? I never kept that out. And let me tell you something. There was a paedophile in the front row being cuddled by his children. And I can't look at him, and I have to do this for my sister. How do you know that was a paedophile? Because it was their dad. My dad. Oh. And I'm doing this, right, and I'm talking about my sister, but I'm doing it for my sister, and I'm watching them cry, oh. and they're all cuddling with this paedophile. He was right there. Yeah, and they're all cuddling with this paedophile, but they promised me that I'm not oh. to do nothing, right? And I get a half hour to talk about my sister's life. And then... When they get out, they're all cuddling this paedophile and he goes, and I go to the, I get in my car and I drive to the cemetery because I'm going to help put my sister in the ground. And uh, I get there and I walk behind the hearse and there's a picture of my sister and I just focused on my sister. Do you know what I mean? I just, and I kept saying to myself, I'm going to do everything that's right for you today. Do you know what I mean? And uh, yeah, I buried my sister, but I just, yeah, I could tell you some lots more, but you have to read the book because he's quite powerful. Do you know what I mean? I'm blown away right now. He's was, quite was powerful. It, was it the shame that would have fallen upon your family that, as perceived by your siblings that made them cover it up? They didn't want to be associated so, with the shame of that? So, you know my subconscious that we spoke about? Yeah. They was older than me, some of them. Yeah. Did you see what I more than what I did? Why are you covering this up? I yeah. don't understand it. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Were you going to make out you never saw nothing? You didn't see nothing? You lived in there as much as I did? So, but people do make choices in life that, so I don't, and I can say this now, I've got six brothers and three sisters, one's passed away, so I don't talk to none of them. Right. Because I don't want to talk to people that want to do that. That you could not, I don't care who you are, you can't protect someone like that. Did they ever tell you what their individual reasons were? Okay. So now I'm very mentally unstable. So I goes out for a drink. I'm out of prison and I'm having a drink with my brother. And I said to him, do you remember that time we was in the hospital? And he come out with that. Do you remember that? He went, I don't know what you're talking about. I won't now. Whoa, maybe I am mad. And I really believe, oh, maybe I have made all this up. Maybe I've invented my whole life. It's all madness. It's all crazy. Do you know what I mean? I, maybe I really am mad. And then I realised, no, you're a cunt. Do you know what I mean? Because you're going to sacrifice me and your sister to protect this person. And that's when I went, done. Because if I'm there, you know, that's when I realised, whoa, you're prepared to do anything. Do you think, all right, because your parent is like your God, like you say. Yeah. Do you think it would be too traumatic for some of them to accept that he did it? It would just break everything down they'd ever believed in in their lives. They chucked him out of the house. Well, they did. Yeah. And none of them had nothing to do with him, but except for one brother took him into his ass. Yeah. Which I went man there and said to him, look, you have to get him out of your ass. He phoned the police on me. Yeah. So for whatever reason, everyone has their own reasons. Mm. Do you know what I mean? But you have to live with that. 
Mm. Do you know what I mean? You make choices in life that you have to live with. They're not the choices that I'll, I know for a fact I would I would never protect anyone like that in my life. Yeah. It's not happening. Yeah. It's not happening. Oh, man, it's so heavy. All right, so we should end on a positive note then about the work that you're doing now. Yeah. Do you want to tell us how you got into the schools and stuff? So when – so I, as you've probably worked out, I, I like talking. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how long we've been going for. Almost but, two hours. Yeah. Oh, is it really? Yeah, yeah. All right. And so uh, it, it, it's actually become my passion. And so I found my passion late in life, and my passion is to help other people. And so I, I instill in young people that, you know, the earlier you can in life to find a passion, you're more than likely to succeed in life because that passion is going to become a way of life and a living for you, and it will give you everything you need in life. And so I was going around giving talks in schools. I didn't know what I was doing. Do you know what I mean? I didn't have a clue, but I knew I wanted to help young people. And uh, but this was this was ten years ago. Do you know what I mean? So I, you know, you get some people say, "Oh yeah, I give talks in schools." They've only been in one school. Do you know what I mean? And now they they, they talk in schools. And so it was just a, a snowball effect. You know, every time I give a talk in a school. They would get the teachers would come out, go and get someone, and say, "You've got to listen to this bloke." And you know, I'd be talking about my life because I use my life as a tool for learning, and I can talk to you on any subject that involves multiple things: sex abuse, crime, dysfunction, mental mental health. I can talk to you on all about that. I've probably got a doctor in them and all. Do you know what I mean? And so I have a way of using my life's path as a tool for learning. So I come up and I and I moulded this talk and I called it a life without education, because I couldn't read or write, because school, as I said, it wasn't for me. Do you know what I mean? And I was going there for the wrong reasons, and that was to eat and mess about, and they was giving away free food, and so I moulded this what I call now a life without education, a, a talk, and I was doing that, and you know it was. I was getting asked to come. I never never phoned anyone up and said, can I come to your school? It was always come to, you know, we've heard from back. And, and to this day, it's like that now. Then I started doing work with Fulham Football Club, QPR. And then uh, I started going in Feltham. Then I was asked to train prison officers. Mm. Uh, and it just went crazy. It went mad. and But I was just driven to help young people. And then someone said to me, well, you need to write a book. I said, what about and they said, a gangster life. I said, shut the fuck up. I said, I'm just a poor kid without an education out the East End of London that had no mentors and role models. They said to me, write about that then. <laughs> so that's what I wrote about. And then the book become a powerful tool. So in Feltham Young Offenders Prison, is stored in the library. And so the aim is to get young people into literature. So this book is written in a way, it's like me and you now sitting here having a conversation. So young people that, that are disengaged, have never read a book, will read that because it's like they're having a conversation with me. And so it's engaging and it's real and it's and they're a product of a postcode and they live this life. And so they get it. And so it engages them. Then they go on to read another book. So then I started doing workshops with them. Workshops on drugs, mental health, uh, identity. Because if I said to you at 14 years of age, who are you? You wouldn't have a clue. But guess what you would tell me? You would tell me that you was funny, care, caring, kind. That's only what your mates have told you. So, But you can't tell me who you are. 
Do you know what I mean? So I do things on, but all written by myself. Workshops on identity. Do you know what I mean? Uh, I don't call it uh, gangs. It, I call a workshop about a group of mates. <laughs> do you know what I mean? And so I don't subscribe to all that gangs and all that. It just drives me crackers. And so it, then it just evolved and evolved. And you know what I mean? I spend my life going into schools. But along the way, I get contacted. I'm the person you go to if you've got a little Gary Hutton in your life. And so I've I've helped so many young people, and there's a few that stick out. There was a young boy, Randy, he's in the book. He was, he ended up on Crime Watch at the age of 15. He was involved in a high-profile murder. Mm. And before this, he come to me and he said to me, Gail, like, help me straighten my life out. I said, I can't. You're destined to spend long periods of your life in prison. And he walked away from me with trousers around his eyes. I said, what the fuck do you know? And walked off. And then six months later, I was in the old Bailey. He was up for murder. So a grown-up security guard's got these two 16, 15-year-olds to kill the, the, the... Well, not to kill him, but to take the money out of the safe in a, in a, uh, in a clothing shop. Uh, one of the chains. One of the clothing chains. And the poor blokes ended up dead. But he didn't actually do it. But I knew he was going to go to prison anyway because he was running about like a like a nutter, and he was he was fifteen, but he was he looked like a thirty five year old that just come out of the gym. He was massive, and uh, his nickname I won't tell you nickname, but yeah. But once you see him, yeah, you can definitely see why. Uh, but yeah, I turned his life around, let him go to prison, but I kept in his nut all the time. Do you know what I mean? I wouldn't let him go, and he come out of prison, and I, and I put this. Uh, program together called fight for a better life which the government now used to work with young people the way that they should work with young people and uh changed his life he's uh he's now been he went on his first holiday a couple of years ago he's now a qualified electrician wow uh living a lovely life driving a nice car and he sorted his life out but that was after he came out of prison he said to me how am i going to change my life i said i tell you he said yeah i said you have to become known as a cunt he said, I ain't a cunt. I said, no, just listen. I said, see what happens is, right, now you're out of prison, you're three times the size of you winning because I can see you've been in the gym. And he's massive, big black, he's massive. I said, what's going to happen? You're going to get three phone calls. It was like Christmas Carol. I said, someone's going to phone you up and they're going to say to you, uh, oh, look, will you help me? This geezer owes me money from a drug debt. Will you come and help me and just stand by me and then I'll give you a few quid? I said, but you've got to say no. He said, what? I said, just say no. Listen to me, just say no. I said, when you say no after that, you're going to get another phone call. Oh, you know, it would be good for this, him, because, you know, he, he's he's really tough and he, he look out, he watch our back and all this, and we'll give him 10 grand. I said, but you got to say no. He said, all right. I said, and the third time you're going to get asked, you must say no, and then they're going to call you a cunt. He said, I'm not having anyone call me. I said, no, listen. I said, because when they're in a group and they're saying, oh, you know, he'd be good for that, he'd be good for this, let's get him involved. And then one of them would go, oh, no, I asked him about something the other week, he's a cunt, he don't want nothing to do with it. I said, then you become a cunt, people leave you alone. I said, and that's what I've done, i become a cunt and people leave me alone. <laughs> <laughs> they don't ask you anymore. And then he got it, and now he's used that, and that's it. Mm. And so, yeah, I mean, one, one young boy, he was enslaved by travellers. He come from a middle class family. His dad was uh, had a, a fantastic job. Uh, and he didn't know what to do. He's, he was at university. He's doing really well, and he got enslaved by travellers. What do you mean enslaved by travellers? How did they him, enslave you? They took him and they told him, "You now, you live here. 
we'll let you home sometimes. Everything you want you should do, you do. He bought, his, his parents were quite affluent. He bought them a BMW. How it come to an, an end? Uh, was he in debt with them or something? No. They're just, they're just you're out gonna, of the clear blue, they just... You're good. They've took him in, they've seen he's weak. Yeah. Uh, and they've took him in. He's robbing houses, he's doing everything from. And he, when when I've got, when I've got hold of him, I tell him, look, this has got to stop, blah, blah, you've got to, no, I can't, his parents going to move him and everything. We ended up getting him in a safe, face safe house in Ireland, but he'd done a prison sentence. What happened to all they sent him in this big ass and he went up to the CCTV and he put his face in front of the camera so he could go to prison. Mm, to get out of to it. To get out of it because they, was, they physically ruled his life. Do you know what I mean? They said when he ate, when he had to they take him to places to work, they rob houses, he was just money for them. Do you know what I mean? And the parents was giving him money, hand over fist, thinking that, you know, they didn't know what was going on until I got involved. But, yeah, we, you know, thank God he's in a safe house. He's living in Ireland now. Because they got a big network. They could have found yeah, him. Yeah, yeah. But so, yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't like to put trumpets up my arse and blow them. And so I believe I've lived my life the way I've, that I have. It's given me the skills and the understanding to connect and work with these young people. Everyone thinks, oh, yeah, I'm going to do this. You can't do it. I can't walk into a bank and become a banker. Do you know what I mean? I can't walk into a mortgage advisor and become a mortgage advisor. You know, I can't go on and do this. Do you know what I mean? This takes skills. You, it's, it's, you learn these things. Do you know what I mean? Not everyone can work with young people. And then a lot of people get found out. What kind of questions do they ask you at the end of the talks? Do you know, honestly, and I say this in schools, they don't want to ask me nothing. Don't no, because they, they start to realise that I'm very streetwise yeah. and they feel embarrassed to ask yeah. something just in case I show them up. Right. Do you know what I mean? Which is, in a, a way... Intimidating. No, in a way, not intimidating. They just know that I'm very clued up. Yeah. But in a way, it's good because it's making them think... Sunk in. That they're, they're not really living this life. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Not, and, and where it can end up... You get them out of the bubble. Yeah, where it can really end up. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And it yeah. ends up in some dark, dark places. Do you know what I mean? But, but a lot of people that live this life, they've suffered a trauma when they was a kid. Do you know what I mean? And yeah. I've just, in this second book... A lot of people who've been on this podcast have suffered trauma yeah. when they were kids. Yeah. So, you know, uh, the, these interviews are great. But if you mask the face, the, the people that are sitting in my chair all telling the same story. Yeah, yeah. Do you know what I mean? They're all telling the same story. Yeah. It, it, it's all there. Do you know what I mean? But some of them are not open enough and haven't been through, you know the change that needs to happen. Do you know what I mean? But yeah, yeah it's, 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 it's been a journey and I've changed a lot of uh, young people's lives. Good. Do you know what I mean? But I, I also help the families as well. Do you know what I mean? A lot of young people are watching this. Maybe teachers are watching this. Mm. So below the video, we can, we're going to put all your information. Yeah. And perhaps it's slowed down because of the lockdowns and stuff. But yeah. can people still contact you and have you do, do a talk and yeah. stuff? Yeah. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, I'm available. I'll come to a school at a drop of a net. Do you know what I mean? Uh, there, there's nothing, if it involves a young person, you know, I would help, I would do whatever I can. Yeah. And so the charity I set up become an alternative education provider. And wow. so it's it's recognised across London boroughs working with the councils. Wow. Uh, and, a, you know, a kid that couldn't read or write. Yeah. I had no interest in academia whatsoever. Yeah. I ain't done too bad. Fantastic. Yeah, I haven't done too bad. And uh, there's a lot of projects uh, that are going on. As I say, I'm writing a second book, uh, which comes out next year. Uh, 
out of the darkness into the light. And it's about the transformation and the inspiration. Where does it come from and how to inspire people to make the changes needed to live a, you know, a life away from dysfunction. And if people watching this want to get this book, is it available on worldwide yeah. on Amazon? So, yeah, if you go on Amazon, uh, you can download the book on Amazon. Uh, it's free pan, but it's a free pan donation to the charity. Yeah. So it helps us go out and do the work that we're doing. Yeah. And so yes, it's it's been it's got some great reviews. Some of them I'm like, wow, do you know what I mean? Uh, it's just unbelievable that the book, you know, and and, and do you know honestly, I've never read it, and I tell you why I never read it. If you read it and you said to me this story, I will be able to tell you like that because I lived it. Yeah. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Same as what you could do. It's because you lived it. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And and it, and it resonates, you know what I mean, with people. And it, it, it's helped so many people. And, I, and I'm so glad that I read it. But if you don't read this one, you won't, the second one might make sense. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Because in there is dysfunction. You know, everything. It, it, everything's in there. Do you know what I mean? I'm going to download that tonight. So I urge other people, if you're out there, please support what Gary's doing. Please. And... Is there anything you'd like to say in conclusion to the people watching this? Yeah, so I am I'm just working on a project now that's going to change the way we work with young people, dysfunctional young people. Uh, I've had this idea for 10 years, and so now I've worked everywhere, and I knew when I come up with this idea, it's not happening. And I've been in everywhere. I've been in schools. I've been in prisons. I've been there everywhere there is to work with young people. I've been in children's homes. Do you know what I mean? I've been everywhere. And I know that there's nothing out there like this. And so this project that I'm working on, uh, hopefully it will go across the country. And But it's only... And, uh, see, I've got an addiction. And I, I developed this addiction at a very young age, and it's called money. Hmm. And so I can't have vast amounts of money. And my partner will tell you, I have £20 a day in my pocket because if I have any more than that, I can turn that into whatever I want and then I become an international playboy mm. and start getting on planes and nightclubs and and, it just, and that's my addiction and that's why I don't take money from nothing. Do you know what I mean? I just want to change young people's lives yeah. and I believe I've lived my life the way I live to be able to do that. And uh, yeah, but one thing's for sure, you know, we're all a product of a postcode. Our mentors and our role models make us what we become in life. Products of a zip code in America. Absolutely brilliant message. Gary, we went some dark places today, but we see your pure soul and positivity, and it's just so brilliant that you're affecting the lives of all these young people and going in young offenders and the stories you've told us, you know, about the transformations are just, yeah, absolutely brilliant. So if you're watching this, Please support Gary's work. All the links are in the description box below the video. Please, in the comments, let us know what you thought about this video today. Huge thank you to all the new subscribers. Subscription logos in the bottom right-hand corner. And huge thank you to people who've gone down and clicked on all our links, donation links, social media links, and checked all our other stuff out. Endless uh, true crime podcasts for you to spend hours on lockdown watching down the... All right, bro, give us a hug then, man. <laughs> Cheers. Yeah. Thank you very Absolutely much. Absolutely brilliant. Yeah, oh, really brilliant. Thank you. Oh, you know, I can't believe that was, that was that long. <laughs> oh, yeah. Why? Well, wasn't it?